different today. Um, the battery's running out on it, and it has a number that doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Um, okay it's also rather intimidating, but it... Okay. <laughs> there's no number in our English alphabet that looks like a C. C is a zero. No. Alright, so I thought we would do something different today. This is uh, March 19, 2017 in Santa, South Africa. And I thought we would read from the Krishna book. How many of you have read Krishna book? This is from chapter 33. Prabhupada says, Actually, the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. But it is appreciated in different ways by different kinds of living entities. This is confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita. Yetamam prapadyante tams tadaiva bhajam yaham. Krishna is dancing, and every living entity is also dancing. But there is a difference between the dancing in the spiritual world and in the material world. This is expressed by the author of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, who says that the master dancer is Krishna, and everyone is his servant. Everyone is trying to imitate Krishna's dancing. Those who are actually in Krishna consciousness respond rightly to the dancing of Krishna. They do not try to dance independently. But those in the material world try to imitate Krishna as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The living entities are dancing under the direction of Krishna's maya and are thinking they are equal to Krishna. But this is not a fact. In Krishna consciousness, this misconception is absent. For a person in Krishna consciousness knows that Krishna is a supreme master and everyone else is his servant. One is to dance to please Krishna, not to imitate or to attempt to become equal to the supreme personality of Godhead. The gopis wanted to please Krishna and therefore, as Krishna sang, they responded and encouraged him by saying, well done, well done. Sometimes they presented beautiful music for his pleasure and he responded by praising there. So I feel that this paragraph really encapsulates what do we mean by Krishna consciousness and what is the goal of Krishna consciousness. So the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. What does that mean? The world is full of Krishna's singing. So we know that even solid matter is not really solid. Yes? You all remember that from school? That most of solid matter is actually space? Yes? And in that space, the electrons are moving around the neutrons and the protons. There's movement going on. And when there's movement, there must be sound. There must be sound. So everything is making some sound. You can say, well, we don't hear that. But there's so many sounds we don't hear, isn't it? Um, My father used to have a dog, and he had a special whistle that you could blow that the dog would hear, and humans would not hear. So many things we don't 
here we don't see, you know, when insects, certain insects, they look at a flower and they can see colors, uh, waves of the spectrum that we cannot see. So, for if, we, if we imagined, if we imagine that the world that we perceive is the world, generally we think like that, the world that I perceive is the world, that I'm perceiving some objective reality especially since the majority of other humans perceive something very similar to what I perceive. But if the majority of humans have the same limitations of sense perception, then none of us are perceiving things accurately. We're perceiving only a tiny fraction of what is there to perceive. So we're not generally able to hear that the world is full of Krishna singing. And sometimes we get a sense of it. I think sometimes, especially if we're not so busy, if we're not running around trying to get a lot of things done, and we're just out in a natural setting, we become aware how there's some kind of harmony in the creation. Isn't it a fact? The word harmony, we use that in many senses, but we also use it in a musical sense. So if you're up on a mountain or in a field or uh, by a body of water, and you, make, you get a sense, especially if you just relax, <laughs> and if you're not trying to get a lot done, if you just become appreciative of your surroundings, you get a sense that there's a great harmony in nature. So we get a little idea when we become attentive to the world. Generally, we go through the world without being attentive to it. We're just attentive to what I particularly want to accomplish. <laughs> Goal in mind. But when we become attentive to the world, we notice that there's something very harmonious going on here. And if we had the consciousness to perceive it, we would actually hear that the world is full of Krishna's singing. So it must be a very beautiful thing to hear. Krishna says in the 20th chapter of Krishna book that the materialists perceive the world as an aggressive place. He said to those who are in Krishna consciousness, Everything is very happily situated. So when one has the right consciousness, one's aware that everything is perfect and everything is working together in that perfection. So how are we going to really appreciate that the world is full of Krishna's sin? Wouldn't that be a nice thing to be able to appreciate all the time? Isn't it? If we could have an awareness of that, that the world is full of Krishna's sin. So not too long ago, I, I, I watched a movie called The Man Who Knew Infinity. I don't know if any of you have seen that. So it was about a, uh, another devotee of Krishna, South Indian, uh, Sri Vaishnava, who by worship of the Lord was able to see mathematical patterns everywhere. I don't know if he was able to hear them, but he was able to see them. And he was able, when he looked at the world, he was able to just see all the different mathematical patterns and be able to understand the harmony of creation because of his devotion. And then, of course, he was challenged by the atheistic mathematicians. Can you prove that what you're seeing is true? Can you prove with mathematical formula that what you're seeing by divine grace is actually true? But one who's in Krishna consciousness, who's conscious of God, has this ability to see and to hear that Krishna is everywhere. 
and that everything is interconnected with Krishna. That Krishna in his unmanifested form, his, his form as sound and his beauty and so forth, is situated everywhere. So Prabhupada gives us some guidance here as to how we can get to that point. So that this concept of the world being full of Krishna's singing is not simply some intellectual idea of the world is full of Krishna's singing. But so it becomes our lived experience, our lived reality. Uh, The particular purpose of bhakti yoga is to give us what's been termed generally a religious experience. But not just one, not just you have, you know, some far out experience. But as Prabhupada says at the end of Bhagavad Gita, that one should be living with a thrill when? Does anyone know what Prabhupada says? Very end of Bhagavad Gita, 18th chapter. Very, very end. When Sanjaya says, whenever he remembers the universal form, he has a thrill again and again. And Prabhupada says there that we should be experiencing a thrill when? Anybody? At every moment, he says. At every moment. So our goal of Krishna consciousness, of being aware of Krishna, is that we would live life with a thrill at every moment. And this thrill at every moment is because we have an awareness of Krishna. So how to do this? So here Prabhupada gives us some things not to do and some things to do. So let's look at what not to do first. We'll look at the, we'll eat the bitter melon first and we'll eat the gulabjaman second. Is that all right? I know in some parts of India they eat the desserts first. But I wasn't raised that way, so we'll eat the desserts second. So he says, don't try to imitate Krishna. When we try to imitate Krishna, we lose our awareness of Krishna's presence. And we lose our appreciation for Krishna. Of course, sometimes they say imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. But our imitation of Krishna is because we're trying to usurp his position. I want the world to be full of my glories and I want the world to be full of, of my beauty and my harmony. And, and, uh, therefore, Bhakti Vinod says that the original problem is this desire for fame, this desire for honor, this desire for praise, that I want to be at the center. Just like we say, that the spiritual master's glories are spread all over the three worlds. So we want our glories to be spread all over the three worlds. We want to imitate Krishna. We want to leave our mark everywhere in the world. We want to be remembered even after death that we've done so many things. To imagine that we're very important. So this way of imitating Krishna prevents us from appreciating Krishna. We can understand this even in our normal dealings. If the parents say to one of their children, Oh, you did a very good job on your schoolwork. And the other child says, Well, what about me? Then the person saying, Well, what about me? They've lost the ability to appreciate their brother or sister. You understand? As soon as we do that. Well, what about me? And, and we typically do this, right? We hear about somebody else getting honored. We hear about somebody else having some accomplishment. And our just, we don't like to admit this, of course. We try to hide this. But our immediate reaction is, what about me? Why wasn't it me? Why was it this person? 
I'm actually just as qualified as that person. Maybe I'm even more qualified than that person. Why should they be getting the honor and the respect and the titles and, and not me? So as soon as we try to put ourselves in that position, we lose the ability to appreciate the person whose position we are trying to usurp. And the main reason that we have a difficulty with appreciating Krishna is we're also trying to imitate him. Now, if we're simultaneously trying to imitate him and we're trying to appreciate him, then it might be that the reason we're trying to appreciate him is for our own benefit. Like many people like to be friends with rich and famous and powerful persons to upgrade their own status. Isn't it? I was reading about this one billionaire lady who tries to use her money to manipulate world politics. And to some extent she's successful at doing that, at least apparently so. And at least one person was quoted as saying that if she didn't have any money, nobody would bother spending any time with her because she wasn't a very pleasant person. So many times we want to be around people who are, have some opulence just so that we can get something from our, for ourselves. So if our purpose is to have ourselves in the center, and at the same time we want to appreciate Krishna, then why are we wanting to appreciate Krishna? Then it means we're not really trying to appreciate Krishna for Krishna. You understand? We're trying to appreciate him for something he can do for me. Maybe if I appreciate Krishna, I'll be known as a great saintly person. And people will say, oh, what a spiritual person you are. Or maybe if I appreciate Krishna, then I'll have great power. Maybe if I can hear Krishna singing everywhere, I'll know how the universe works and then I'll be able to manipulate it properly. Right? The materialistic people want to say that the universe works just by some sort of laws of physics and, and mathematics. They want to deny that God exists at all. And we were talking the other day of why would anyone be motivated to think like that? Why would anyone want to think the universe was ultimately just cold and mechanical? It sounded very sad to me. <laughs> the basis of everything is mechanical. And I thought, oh, but there's a benefit because if the basis of everything is mechanical, then I can master it. If the basis of everything is a complex person, it's very hard to master another person. Yes? The history of the world is of, of one person or one group of people trying to master another. It doesn't work very well, does it? Does it work very well? Does it work very well? No. The person who is mastered doesn't like being mastered. They, they don't appreciate it. So if everything's being run by a person, how am I going to master that person and run the universe? That's a little daunting. But if everything's just being run mechanically, then, well, there's a chance, right? I mean, I could possibly master a machine easier than another person. So they're thinking like that. And then people who are a little bit more intelligent understand, no, 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 everything's got to be run by a god. There's got to be a god. Everything can't just be mechanical. Well, okay, I'm not going to be able to master that god. That, that's just not going to happen. But I could try to curry his favor. And then he could give, grant me the powers of mastery. 
Now, such service, again, it isn't real service. Right? If I'm serving a powerful person so that they can grant me a favor and share their power with me, then I'm worshipping their power. Ultimately, I'm worshipping myself. And many of the great demigods in the universe are in this category. Indra and Chandra and Vayu. Many of them are in this category where they're worshipping the Lord so they can be granted some of his power. They can take a position, yes, I am the Lord of wind and I am the Lord of rain and I am the Lord of heat. I am powerful in that way. So even then, a person is trying to imitate Krishna. And we find that we even have problems with the demigods not being able to appreciate Krishna. There's so many stories like of Indra, who fails to appreciate Krishna, even though he's the god of the rain, and the god of thunder and electricity. Uh, because he's trying to take a position of power, he can't appreciate Krishna. So Prabhupada says, don't imitate. Then he also says, don't try to be independent. He says, don't dance independently, and I, I really like where... Um, let's say. He said, they do not try to be independent. He said, everyone is trying to either dance independently or dance with somebody else. So if we're trying to have our own dance and our own song, if we're trying to sing independently, or we're trying to dance with somebody else, what does Prabhupada mean by with somebody else? He means with illusion. Don't try to dance with illusion. Uh, don't try to be in harmony with something that is false. Uh, just like Prabhupada often gives the example that in the prison house, the state laws are also operative. So when you're a prisoner in the prison house, you are definitely following the laws of the state. But you're not following the laws in the state of the state in a way that's pleasing to anyone, including yourself. So it's an energy of the government that you don't want to be in harmony with. You understand? You don't want to live your life in harmony with the laws of the prison as a prisoner. You want to live your life in harmony with the laws as a free person. So, Prabhupada says, don't try to dance independently of Krishna. Is that even possible? Can we dance and function independently of Krishna? No, all of our energy and all of our intelligence is coming from Krishna, so that's not possible. But trying to means that we create havoc. Like if you have a beautifully choreographed dance, or you see, you know, dancers or actors or whatever, or musicians, when they're all working in harmony with one another, it's very beautiful. But if one tries to act independently, it creates chaos. So if we try to act independently, all that happens is we become in conflict. We become in conflict with the world, we become in conflict with other living beings. We become in conflict with our own body. I think of it like if you had a stage and you had dancers on the stage all working, you know, in, in, in a synchronized way. And then one person says, well, I'm going to be the prima donna and I'm going to be, dance myself. They would start bumping into the other dancers and they might even push people off the stage and, and fall off the stage. Or with anyone else means, again, in concert with illusion. And illusion is the energy that prevents us from seeing Krishna. It's the energy that makes us think things are valuable without Krishna. It covers our awareness. So as soon as we try to work in harmony with what is false, 
then we lose our ability to perceive the real. Something like people who take some sort of intoxicant. When people take intoxicants, they're no longer aware of what's going on. They cause car accidents and violence and so many things. So we should not be trying to dance in that way. So those are the negatives. Don't imitate Krishna, don't dance independently, and don't dance with somebody else. So the positive, Prabhupada says that we should respond rightly to Krishna's dancing. We should respond rightly. And I think this is a, a very beautiful phrase because we tend to think that, well, my choices are just to become a machine for God. When we say we'll work as Krishna's instrument or we should just try to serve Krishna or just try to please Krishna. I think for many of us conditioned souls, it brings up some sort of idea of, of uh, total slavery and total abdication of our own will and our own personality. I mean, after all, in this world, if someone says that, you know, I'm going to be the master and you're going to be the servant and you have to just work to please me and just do what I want and you should just be an instrument for my pleasure, that would not be a very pleasant relationship, would it? It would be a most unpleasant relationship. We say, oh, that person is using me they're just using me for their own pleasure. It implies that there's some sort of exploitation, that it's a very one-way relationship, that they're taking from me and they're not giving to me, or they're giving to me just as much as required for me to continue to meet their needs. So we may think that that's what Krishna means. Or we may think that we lose our identity entirely, so they're many spiritual groups and organizations that preach like this, that we become one with God, that we lose our identity, we just kind of merge into him. So in one way we keep a personality, but it's, it's in a very exploitive sense, or we lose our personality. And neither, neither of those are particularly attractive. I mean, I think maybe they're attractive in the sense that if we're suffering a lot in this world, we might think, oh, it would be better to just not exist. Kind of like, you know, what, drive, what, is, what drives people to suicide is they feel, you know, I'm suffering so much. And they think that if they kill their body, that they'll stop existing entirely. And they think better to just not exist at all than to exist with so much pain. So it can be attractive in that sense, you know. I'll just become one with God. Or perhaps attractive in the sense that we feel a burden of taking responsibility. You know, we want to be like a tiny little child whose parents take responsibility for them and we don't make any decisions. And we may feel, oh, you know, I have such a burden of responsibility and such a burden of decision-making. Okay, Krishna, you just run my life. You know, I'll become a mindless jellyfish, just a blob, and, and you just shape me how you want and move me how you want and do with me as you like. And, and we, may, we may think that spiritual consciousness means that. But either of those, I want to merge with God or I want to become just kind of a mindless blob, are both responses to suffering. They're not what we really want. We don't really want non-existence and we don't really want to be a, a mindless blob. If we thought about that. If, if the person who says, oh, I just want... I'm just going to let go and Krishna can do whatever he wants with me and, and I have no uh, 
thought and no desires and no personality. And we said to them, well, you know, suppose I could give you Alzheimer's today. Would you like that? And people say, no, I don't think so. So in, in practice, we really don't want that. We really don't want to, to lose our intelligence and lose our desires and lose our individuality. So instead, what Prabhupada is saying is respond rightly to the dancing of Krishna. Now, as I'm sure many of you know that when, when two people are dancing, uh, it's, a, it's a going back and forth, it's reciprocating, right? Just like we read here at the end of this paragraph, that when Krishna was singing, the gopis said, well done, well done. And then when the gopis were playing instruments or singing, Krishna said to the gopis, well done, well done. Right? It, was, it was reciprocal. And when you're dancing with someone, uh, one person is leading it's a fact that one person is leading. But first of all, it may not always be the same person. Sometimes one person may be leading, another time another person may be leading. And even if one person is leading, the person who's following is not following like a robot. Nobody wants to go on the dance floor with a robot. People want to go on the dance floor with another living, independent being. And one of the most pleasurable things is when we have two individual wills who remain individual and yet are acting in sync with each other. It's exactly what we're looking for, actually, in all of our human relationships, even our relationships with animals, I suppose, where we maintain our individuality and yet we're operating in, in sync, we're operating in beauty. So respond rightly. It's like, okay, Krishna makes this move. What move do I make as a response to that? How do I respond to Krishna's move? And sometimes it may be that I make a move and the Krishna responds to that, as we see at the end of this paragraph, that the gopis are responding to Krishna's singing and Krishna is responding to the gopis singing. I'm sure if, if any of us have uh, listened to and watched traditional Indian music, so traditional Indian music is not scripted like uh, Western Renaissance music. Right. Classical European music is all scripted, yes? Like Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. They write the whole symphony and the musicians are reading it and playing it. Hmm? Just like many times for the politicians, they have a script they have a speech writer, right? So they're getting up in front of the citizens. Ha ah, ah. but it's not their words. You understand? Somebody else wrote the words. And the politician is really just an actor, just reading a script. But Indian music isn't like that. Indian music doesn't have a script. It has certain rules. And then within those rules, there's improvisation. Are you familiar with this? Yes? Or this is true in Western music and jazz. It's a, jazz is an improvisational style. So in traditional Indian music, you know, the tabla player makes, does something and then the sitar player responds and the tabla player responds and if there's a dancer, they're each responding to each other. And to one not schooled in music, it may, you may think it's as scripted as, a, as Western classical music, but it's not. And nobody knew exactly how the music was going to turn out. It was, it was coming out as it was being played. But it was still within a certain tala in a certain raga. So that's how we respond rightly to the dancing of Krishna. We become co-creators. 
he's playing an instrument and we're playing an instrument, or he's dancing and we're playing an instrument, or we're dancing together, or we're playing an instrument and he's dancing. And in this way, we, have, we can have complete and utter and total harmony, and at the same time, have complete individuality. Individuality and harmony. Uh, Prabhupada makes the point here that we should let Krishna lead. He's the ultimate leader. Sometimes Krishna may ask us to lead, but then we lead because Krishna has asked us to lead. Like Krishna says to Arjuna, okay, you fight and I'll just drive the chariot. Basically, he reversed the positions, yes? Krishna says, I'll be the servant, you be the master. You tell me where to go. Arjuna is telling to Krishna, Sainaya Ubayor of Madhya. Take me, take me to the middle of the army, Krishna. And as the battle's going on, Arjuna's saying, Okay, now go over there, now go over there. But why is Arjuna taking this position? Because Krishna asked him to. He says, I'm, I'm not going to take up a weapon in this war, you fight. So following Krishna's lead, having Krishna be the master, may sometimes involve that we become the position of a master. But only because Krishna has asked us to. Just like, again, even in this world, the parents may ask the children to get up and speak, yes? Isn't it? The professor may ask the student, you get up and present them. So Krishna likes to ask the devotee, you, now you lead. Now you lead. I'll follow you. This is the kind of master that Krishna is. He's not a, a, a despot. He's not an exploiter. He doesn't have any envy. Although he's a supreme master, he likes to put his devotees in the position of master. But we don't usurp that position. We don't grab the position. We take that position as Krishna likes, according to his lead. And then, please, trying to please him. Well, the other day I was listening to Srila Prabhupada define what is material and what is spiritual. Uh, generally, we think of material as some things. Money, a house, a car, a flat screen TV, designer sneakers. We usually think of that as materialism. Yes? And when we think of somebody spiritual, we think, you know, they've got one piece of ragged clothing and they're living in a cave somewhere and they're just eating berries. We tend to think like that. We tend to think that, you know, if someone's materialistic, that means that they have a lot of stuff. And if they're spiritual, they have practically no stuff. But Prabhupada was defining materialistic and spiritual quite differently. He was saying materialistic is when you become happy at others' misfortune. And you become unhappy at others' fortune. As I was saying in the beginning, that we try to imitate Krishna. That you can't appreciate somebody when you're trying to take their position. And we generally have this feeling if someone is getting honored or praised or someone else wins the lottery or whatever, our, our general feeling is, why now? 
We're not usually happy. We don't usually say, wow, that's so great. I mean, we might say that because we're trained by our mother and father when we're very young to say that. But that may not be what our heart is saying. So materialistic means that I become happy at others' misfortune and I become unhappy at others' fortune. The news media every day has something about the misfortune of a beautiful, wealthy, famous, powerful person. Yes? Something about their foolishness, something about their misfortune, and everybody likes to talk about it. You know, those beautiful, rich, and famous people, well, you know, they're getting divorced. You know, that rich and famous and powerful person, well, he's actually a fool. We know this famous and beautiful person, well, actually, they have a drug problem. And everybody likes to talk about that. Yes? So that's materialistic. Materialistic is when I want to be happier than everybody else. You can be happy as long as it's not as happy as I am. It's okay. You can have money as long as it's less than how much money I have. You can have a nice car as long as my car is nicer. Right? You can have a beautiful spouse as long as my spouse is more beautiful. So that's materialistic. And spiritual, Prabhupada said, is when we're happy at others' happiness. Genuinely. When other people's happiness makes us feel genuinely happy. And we all experience this also sometimes. That the parents can feel genuinely happy at their children's accomplishments, or you can feel genuinely happy at something wonderful for your spouse or your good friend or something like that. But that is spiritual. Material and spiritual is not about whether or not you have a car or how much your car costs. It's, it's basically the source of one's happiness. So the way that we appreciate Krishna is not only letting him take the lead and responding to him, but also working for his pleasure. And again, he's not envious. When we work for his pleasure, we realize that he's always been working for our pleasure. But when we forget about our pleasure and just work for his, now we can't do that artificially. You can't just say, okay, well, I'm just going to not think about my own pleasure. It will manifest itself again. It will, it will come up again. You can't just repress this. But we can start to cultivate the sense of being happy at the happiness of Krishna. Of being happy at the happiness of Krishna's devotees. So what will be the result if we do this? Well, first of all, we'd be very, very, very happy. We'd have a happiness quite different than that which people have in material life. Happiness in material life basically comes from two things, which are both very related. Krishna calls it samsparsha ja, samsparsha ja boga. Boga means happiness. Sometimes the word boga means food, uh, but food as a as symbol of happiness. Samsparsha. Sparsha means touch. Ja means birth. The happiness that is born from touch. And this doesn't just mean skin, you know, having some nice soft flower on your skin. It, it means what touches your eyes, what touches your ears, what touches your nose, what touches your tongue. So, 
So what we call happiness in this world usually means that there is a something I call pleasant, uh, you might not call pleasant, we all have different tastes, but something that I call pleasant interaction where there is a touch between a sense object and my senses. Okay? For me, some sorts of sounds might be pleasant and those same sounds might be unpleasant for you. For me, some foods might be unpleasant, which for you are pleasant. I was recently with some devotees and one of them would put salt on her watermelon. So I found that quite unpleasant. But she enjoyed it. So we have our different, we may have our different ideas about what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. But the principle that's something I call pleasant, touching my senses, that is happiness. And the other main kind of happiness is, is more subtle. It's the same as Samsparsa Jaboga, but it's subtle. And that is something pleasant touches my ego. Which basically means either I accomplish something great that I wanted to accomplish, and I say, yes, I have done this. Uh, and better yet, other people say, great, you have done this. So basically people praising us, people telling us how clever we are, how beautiful we are, how powerful we are, how renounced we are, how spiritual we are, how something we are. So other people recognizing, are recognizing for ourselves, we like to be able to look at ourselves and say, I am great. And uh, that, that's also part of our ego. And other people saying, you are great. So that's a, it's a subtle touch, uh, but uh, our admiration, other people's admiration, touching our ego, rubbing against our ego, polishing our ego, we're like, yes. So this is what we call happiness. This is our, our concept of, of happiness. So when we say your life will be filled with joy, we don't mean that. We mean something else. You can say, oh, do you mean the, the joy of like, uh, emotional connection. And it's interesting, Bhaktivinoda talks about that as heavenly joy. Bhaktivinoda says the joy of just the senses and the ego is an earthly joy, and the joy of emotional relationships with others is a heavenly joy. So we might say, well, that, there's that kind of joy. There's a joy of feeling that people really care about me and I care about them, and that I've contributed to others' welfare and that kind of thing. Um, no, but there's a joy even beyond that. Because even that joy is contaminated uh, by this concept of, of ego. But the joy beyond that is a joy of spiritual, spiritual love, of simply a giving love. And an and awareness, as we get back to what we were talking to about in the first place, an awareness that everything is full of music, that everywhere is full of music and dance, that, that everything sparkles with uh, beauty of vision and sound uh, that is coming from this loving relationship. And that one sees that everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfectly arranged. Everything is perfectly controlled. And this joy basically comes from a sense of peace. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, you cannot be happy without peace. You know, if you've got all your sense objects, you've got your wonderful meal and your beautiful furniture and everybody's praising you. But 
you know, you know you're about to be arrested for something. So you can't really enjoy anything because there's no peace. Right? Or I know, I don't know what they do in this country, but in America, before they execute a criminal, they say, okay, what would you like to eat? And they bring them a meal of whatever they want. But how much could you enjoy that meal? You know, if your executioner is standing right next to you with the hood on his face. So if there's anxiety, there can't be happiness. So this joy is predicated on peace. And where does this peace come from? It comes from that everywhere is full of Krishna's singing. The whole universe is, is a symphony that's in harmony. There's nothing out of place. There's nothing bad. Now, sometimes we say, well, see the good and the bad. But we're usually talking about that materially. You know, okay, you got fired from that job, but there's probably a better job around the corner. See the good and the bad. But we're saying see the ultimate good, because sometimes there is no material good in the bad. Sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes materially it's just bad. But when you see that there's a divine plan, and that everything's part of of this beautiful concert and dance, then you see there's nothing bad at all. You know, the difficulties the, in, in, a, in a finely scripted dance drama add to the beauty and enjoyment of the entertainment, isn't it? Yeah? So then one has peace. Everything is being controlled by somebody who knows what he's doing. There, there's somebody in charge, and that somebody is everywhere. That, that someone's beautiful voice and beautiful dancing is pervaded everywhere. And as one can hear that and become aware of that, then one feels the presence of that perfect person who's in charge everywhere, and one feels peace. And in that peace, one feels security. One doesn't feel any fear. One doesn't feel fear of of injury. One doesn't feel fear of sickness or poverty or infamy or even death. So this is what Srila Prabhupada's challenging us to do. He's challenging us to become aware that the world is full of Christmas singing and to become aware of it uh, by not trying to imitate Krishna, not trying to dance alone or to dance with anyone else, but to follow his lead, to try to please him, to try to praise him, which gives us a life full of joy and peace and security. I thought we'd start early and we have some people with questions. You two young men must have a lot of questions because you've been talking through the whole class. So I'd like to know what your questions are. Something you'd like to know? That you'd maybe like to share with us? Sometimes in, uh, you know, the, the uh, counter to that, you know, presumably positive, which is allowing Krishna to take the lead, mm. we fall back on sometimes imitating. Uh, in other words, how I'm trying to put it is that 
we we constantly you cannot destroy identity, mm-hmm. and you you're constantly trying to um, reproduce an iteration, an identity of the self which is closer to what would be following Krishna, if that makes sense. And so you never really purify um, your that full understanding of yourself. I'm not sure if I follow. Okay. Uh, um, you're trying to allow Krishna to take the lead. Yes. And you have you already have a preconceived notion of what it means for Krishna to take the lead in your life. Okay. Yeah. So then you fathom up, you dream up an image or an identity of yourself uh, that that correlates to your idea of this is what it means to be under Krishna's direction. Okay. Okay. So how do you? Um, is that is that part of the process of purification of identity and intention in bhakti, or um, do you have to cut clean and actually give up all um, uh, sort of preconceived material identities and come to a spiritual realization? Well, you could do either way. I mean, if you if we're willing to just say from the very beginning, okay, Krishna, you take the lead, and mean that. Uh, then we don't have to go through any kind of interim stages. Interim stages are not necessary. They're not required. Just like, you know, Mozart was able to compose music at six years old without any kind of musical instruction. And if somebody said, well, no, 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 you have to get musical instruction anyway. So that, would, that wouldn't be right. As a, as a teacher, so we had a basic principle in mathematics that the children first have to le- work with actual objects. You know, they have to take one block and two blocks and put them together and see that one plus one is two. And then from physical objects, they could work with pictorial representations of objects. And then only after that could they work with abstract numbers. So we went from things they could feel to things they could just see to things they could understand abstractly. But uh, I had only two, but I did have two students who came in at five years old and could already think abstractly. And for them, using blocks was an impediment. You know, if somebody has a broken leg, you want to give them crutches, but if they're already an Olympic sprinter, crutches is an impediment. So some people can go immediately you know, to the higher platform, and they don't need interim stages. But for most people, interim stages are there. And generally an interim stage is, okay, I am following Krishna's lead by being a good bhakti yogi sadaka, or being a good Hindu, or being a good something that's not my eternal identity. And when I have something that's not my eternal identity, everything I do in that consciousness is to some extent contaminated and distorted, more or less. But it may be a useful interim stage that has to be given up at some point. I'm sorry. I, I, does that answer your question? It, it does. It's sort of it, are those like the basic mechanical steps in Vaidhi Bhakti? You you sort of like you're practicing for the sake of practicing. It's 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 uh, until you reach that, that stage of spontaneity. Generally. And generally, for, for somebody in, in uh, Vaidhi Sadhana, even in Raghunuga Sadhana, 
to have the concept of I'm a good sadhaka and therefore I am doing these things is probably useful. It, it's dangerous if you think that by thinking I am a good devotee of Krishna or I'm a good Hindu or I'm a good sadhaka that I have now achieved what I want to achieve. That's dangerous. If you take it up knowing that you're taking up a temporary crutch, then, it's, then you're not in so much trouble when it gets time to give it up. Does that make sense? Yes. Hi, Krishna. Um, it's something that Bhaktivinoda Thakur said that really resonated with me, where he was talking about uh, three levels of, of happiness and the lowest level, which is almost like animal happiness, which is just sense pleasures and ego pleasure. I mean, even the animals have some ego pleasure, isn't it? I'm the biggest elephant. I'm the biggest lion. This is my territory. So that's there even among the animals. I'm the most beautiful peacock. And then he said that the higher than that in the heavenly planets, and that we experience it sometimes on this earth, is where you really have an emotional connection. Now when I say really, uh, you should take that as relative, not absolute. But we feel some extent of emotional connection. In other words, when I'm dealing with someone more as another being rather than as an object for my gratification. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you order some food and food is brought to your table, you know, I'd say probably the majority of people's relationship with the chef and the wait persons is as objects for their gratification. They're probably not even trying to feel any connection with those people. So that's a very base level. But if you go to your friend's house and they've cooked you a meal and you're not there exactly for the food, you appreciate when you're at your friend's house for dinner if it's a good meal. You definitely appreciate it. But that's not what you're there for. There, there's one, one temple I visit which I will not name. It's not in this country. And the prasadam there is very rarely that which I can properly digest. It's very rare that they make anything that I can actually go eat. What to speak of that I like. And I go there because I have a very good friend there. And the last time I was there, she said, you know, I'm really sorry that, this, that all this prasadam is so oily and spicy. And I said, well, I didn't come here for the prasadam. I came here to see you. Now, I would also appreciate it if the food was nice. I definitely would. I would. There's no doubt about it, I would. But I'm there not to enjoy some just sense object. I'm there to enjoy a relationship. So that's at a higher level. And that's the level at which the demigods are existing on. They certainly have many sense objects. But even that, unfortunately, is also material. You know, there, there's still a sense that I'm using people for some emotional state. 
Uh, and, and using people as part of my material identity. So it's not ultimately love. It's closer. You know, it's, it's, it's not an on-off switch. It's a, it's a continuum. So it's closer to love when I'm appreciating having an emotional connection with another living being. That's closer to love than when I see that other being simply as an object for my gross gratification. But the high, you could say the highest expression of an emotional connection is when my emotional connect, when, when all my happiness comes from the happiness of the other. When I'm not using the other to give me happiness in any way, shape, or form. And that would be the highest expression. It can't be imitated, though. You can't imitate. You can't, you can't pretend it doesn't work. Is that clear? Yes. Hi, Kishan. You were talking about uh, the difference between material and uh, spiritual uh, happiness where you said that uh, when another person is happy, then uh, you are happy. That is spiritual happiness. Yes, that's how Prabhupada defined it. Yeah. So can you please explain in reference to the three modes of material nature? Because what is then the mode of goodness? Ah. The mode of goodness. Okay, so in, the, in each of the modes of nature, all, those are all materialistic. But the, again, it's levels. You could think of it that spirituality is pure goodness. Think of that spirituality is like you're outside. Is that door? Is there a door there that's open? Right there? Okay. So spirituality is like you're outside. Mode of goodness is like you're seeing through the glass. Like here I'm seeing through the glass. It's almost as good as seeing outside, but it's, it's has a, the glass isn't perfectly clean. And there's a frame around it that's limiting my vision. And I'm not outside. I can see the outside, but I'm not outside. Then the mode of passion would be more like the light you see coming through that screen. The screen here has some holes in it, and there's light coming through it. But you can't make out the shape so well, or, or like through the kind of glass that's in a bathroom or a shower room. And then the mode of ignorance would be this like the wall. You can't really see outside at all. So if we think of it like that. So my pure consciousness, all of our pure consciousness, is that our happiness comes in the, from the happiness of Krishna. We're just givers. Krishna's also just a giver. It's not that Krishna's the taker and we're all the givers. Krishna's outgiving us at every moment. So Krishna's an infinite giver and we're a finite giver, basically. And in spiritual consciousness, it's all just giving, 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 giving. And there's no taking. It's all abundance. And there's, there's practically speaking, no self-consciousness. The only self-consciousness is I am Krishna's and Krishna is mine. But there, there's no worrying about myself. There's no like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, but will I get this and will I get that? And what about this and what about that? And there, there's, it's, it's all giving. So the mode of goodness is, is down a little step. So the mode of goodness is I'm doing things because by doing these things, I am in balance and harmony. And it feels so good to be in balance and harmony. Like in bhakti, you forgive because you genuinely love and you genuinely want the other to be happy. 
And the mode of goodness you forgive because you're like, wow, as soon as I forgive, I feel so peaceful. I feel relieved. I feel joyful. I know I'm doing what's, what's right and good and proper. In the mode of passion you forgive so you can say, I am a forgiving person. And people will say, glory to you, oh forgiving person. Glory, glory to you, oh forgive. Yes, I am a forgiving person. And what ignorance, you don't forgive at all. You're full of vengeance. You're very vengeful. Is that? Yes. Um, with regards to appreciating, yeah, coming to the state of peace by appreciating Krishna's harmonious control mm. over everything. Mm. Now, yeah, one when one actually gains knowledge of, you know, say reading Srimad Bhagavatam, getting knowledge how because Krishna is really, it's just wonderful. But then you come in a bit closer, and then now, how can you then appreciate the control of Krishna's devotees, and you like now living with devotees? Because like it's not actually so harmonious, uh, you know, uh, as you interact with devotees. Like appreciating the control of another human who's also a devotee who has power over you. No, no, just like the interactions amongst. Like, for example, oh, so you can say theoretically that everything is under is harmonious under a controller, but it doesn't look like that in practice. Yeah, especially in sadhana bhakti, especially everyone in like one persons who aren't perfect in interacting with devotees, uh, with other devotees on different levels. Okay, we don't say that everything's harmoniously perfect means that all other jivas in the material world are going to act in a way that I find pleasing and what I expect they should be doing. First of all, materially speaking, we tend to define harmonious as everybody does things that I like. Everybody's in harmony with me and my desires and my tastes and my timetable. And if they're not, then I think they're not very spiritual. think about that for a minute. You know, I look at the devotees and see, well, you know, these devotees are not acting in ways that I think are proper. And they're not acting in ways that I like. And they're not acting in ways that I can appreciate. And they're not understanding the scriptures the way I understand the scriptures. And they're not living the scriptures the way I live the scriptures. Therefore, they're not very spiritual. Therefore, they're not very advanced. How can I possibly appreciate Krishna's harmonious control with all these neophyte devotees. So to understand Krishna's harmonious control, that everything's under Krishna's harmonious control, means that everything's happening according to his plan, not my plan. And that I'm not able to perceive it even. But if I act as if it's true, I find out that it's true. I find out that everything is working perfectly according to his plan, not necessarily according to my plan. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be in agreement with me about everything. That, in fact, that's never going to happen. 
even in the spiritual world, everyone's not in agreement. Otherwise, there wouldn't be different individuals. What would it mean? If I like watermelon without salt and you like watermelon with salt, we don't agree. So even in, in the ultimate spiritual reality, there's different tastes. Otherwise, what does it mean to be a person? But it's harmonious in that there's no envy. There's no malice. And every, everything, everyone has the mentality of being happy at others' happiness, even though they have different tastes. So if I want to experience that in this world, then I have to get in that consciousness. And then if I'm in that consciousness, it doesn't matter whether or not anybody else is in that consciousness. I'm not dependent on anybody else being in that consciousness. It's not that, oh, if I, were, if I could geographically transport myself from the material world to the spiritual world where everybody behaved properly, then naturally I'd be able to appreciate everything. And the reason I can't appreciate everything is because I'm in this place where everyone else is a big nonsense. It's all their fault. It's all your fault that I'm not Krishna conscious. All of you here, it's all your fault. Because none of you are in harmony with Krishna. Therefore, it's your fault. And if all of you were pure devotees, then I'd be able to see. No, it's not like that. We tend to think it's like that. Well, I'm, it's because I'm geographically in the material world. I'm rightly situated. Yeah, I've got the right consciousness. But I'm just in the wrong geographic location. Like I'm sure you've seen that joke, how, how, much, how much less do you weigh on the moon? Like one-tenth or something, isn't it? The gravity's weaker, right? So on the moon you'd weigh one-tenth what you weigh here. And they say, oh, I'm not overweight, I'm just on the wrong planet. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's like that. You just, we just think, you know, I'm, I'm not materialistic, I'm just, just in the wrong place. And that's why I can't appreciate and experience the harmony, because everyone else around me is, is disharmonious. But that, that's, that's not the reality. <laughs> The reality is that every single, every single being and every single thing is working perfectly according to their level of realization and their willingness to go forward. And everyone is exactly where they're supposed to be always. And Krishna's coordinating the karma of billions of living entities. How does he do that? I have not a clue. How does he coordinate my karma with your karma? No, it's unbelievable. How does he do that? Yeah, I'm sure you've read stories like that of these twins who were adopted, you know, identical twins that were adopted and they were separated at birth. They didn't even know they had a twin, right? They're raised by different families in different places and their families call them the same name. You've read about this sort of thing? And that they marry a spouse of the same name. And they have kids at the same time of the same genders that they give the same name to and they get the same breed of dog that they give the same name to. And in one of these cases, they, they met because they were both truck drivers and they got into a minor accident with each other. And then they discovered they were identical twins and their, their lives had been parallel, even down to the names. 
I didn't figure that out. You know, and how does Krishna arrange that the person that I'm supposed to meet is at that place at that time? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I remember one time when I was driving, all of a sudden I had a strong urge to stop at a, at a store. It's like, why am I doing that? I don't even need anything there. And I stopped there and I met somebody that ended up being crucial to my life, who just happened to be at that store at that time. How does that happen? I am in the foggiest notion. How does he do that? So every, you see that. You see that everything's perfect. That everything's perfect in terms of karma. That everything's perfect in terms of spirituality. And I can just work with the plan. Is that all right? Anybody else? Yes? It's in connection with the spirit definition that you've given quoted by the prophet of spiritual and material. It's, my question is, like, to be genuinely happy when another person is happy, how does that come about? Is it through practicing? Oh, I'm so glad somebody asked that question. It comes about because you don't have any sense of lack. Maybe you guys could like not sit next to each other. It's actually really annoying. Could you move over there? No, a lot more. Like, a lot more. Like, move over at least a meter. No, a meter. You know how long a meter is? It's like about this long. Can you move about that far? That's half a meter. Let's get the other half. So the, the reason that we, we feel unhappy at others' happiness and happy at others' unhappiness is that we think that there's not enough. We, we have a sense of lack. We have a sense of emptiness. We think there's, it's insufficient. There's not enough money. There's not enough gold. There's not enough beauty. There's not enough honor. There's not enough anything. And if someone else gets something, then I can't get it. It's It's fear. You know, like if, if you have a, a big family gathering and someone brings out a tray of cookies and you'll see some of the kids counting the cookies. Right? And, the, and, and one of the kids will say, okay, everybody can get one and a half. Right? So we're kind of calculating like that. That's the problem. That's where that, that comes from. And where does that feeling of lack come from? Where is that feeling that there isn't enough to go around? You know, and, and I, I always have to have a little bit of an advantage. I, why, why do I always have to have a little more than everybody else? Well, because suppose all of a sudden there's scarcity. You know, at any moment there might be scarcity. So I've got, I've got to have kind of a, a buffer. And where does that come from? That mood comes from a sense that I'm separate from Krishna. Where does that come from? That comes from the desire to, be, to think I'm separate from Krishna. It comes from the desire. I'm independent. I'm separate. I, I don't need God. 
I, I can try to be the enjoyer on my own. I can try to be the center of the universe on my own. So that's the root of materialism. And that leads to a sense of separateness, which leads to then a sense of lack and fear. And, you know, we're all very small. We don't really have the power to get our own air and water and food and, every, and clothes and everything we need, right? We have one farm in Hungary, a devoted ISKCON farm, and they like to advertise that they're self-sufficient. But they're only self-sufficient in food, and, not, and that isn't even total. It's pretty close. Most of the year they can live, the whole community can live on what they grow. But they're not self-sufficient in construction materials. They're not self-sufficient in fiber. They're not self-sufficient in medicine. So, you know, for any of us to be self-sufficient in everything, you know, we have these, like, Robinson Crusoe stories where somebody is on some alone and they try to produce everything. But even then, you're still getting from the natural world. You're not creating it. You're not, like, manifesting your own stuff. So we have a lot of fear. How will I get everything that I need? And the way we come to spiritual is we reconnect. And then om purnamada purnamidam purnapurnadudachate purnasya purnamadaya purnamevadasachate. Once we're reconnected, then we know that we're connected with the complete. And infinite minus infinite is infinite. That even if I were to take infinite resources away from the infinite, they're still infinite. There's an infinite, ever-increasing, dynamic source. And that infinite, ever-increasing, dynamic source loves me and wants to supply me infinite, ever-increasing. In fact, I'm a part of that infinite, ever-increasing source. So once I have that connection, then if there's infinite, why should it bother me that somebody has equal or greater than me? There's plenty to go around. I can have infinite and you can have infinite. Isn't it? You know, if there's so much cheesecake, if the person who cooked, you know, made five cheesecakes, then we don't really care if somebody has three big pieces. You understand? That doesn't bother us. Because there's still some left at the end of the party. So when we have this awareness that, you know, there's, there's, it, it's, it's infinite. So therefore, spirituality has to start not with imitating or pretending just to be happy at others' happiness, but it has to start with that feeling of connection. And we only get the feeling of connection when we are connected as we are, and as we are is subordinate. Is that okay? So glad you asked that question. Anything else before we break? So thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Shiva Prabhupada.